Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Joining me this morning is author Joseph Finora. We'll discuss his new book, Red Like Wine, The North Fork Harbor Vineyard Murders. It's a murder mystery novel based on Long Island. Good morning, Joseph. Good morning, Robin. So tell me a story. Summarize uh, Red Like Wine for me. Tell you about the book. Uh, the book is entirely a product of my rambling, never-ceasing imagination. It takes place in a, a fictitious vineyard that's basically based on a blend of all the various towns that make up the North Fork of Long Island, as opposed to the glamorous South Fork. The North Fork has a history of uh, potato and pumpkin farms, but in the past 30 years, uh, it's transitioned to one of the top winemaking regions in the country. In fact, I, I remember when I was an FUV or here, uh, I wrote one of the first stories on the first grapevines that were planted in eastern Long Island. That was around 1981. Wow. So I'm a dinosaur. I'm like a fine wine getting better, I hope. So tell me the story. Summarize it for me. Well, the main character, the protagonist, Vin Gusto, is obviously somewhat autobiographical. He's a, he's a down-on-his-luck reporter. And uh, one morning, he's between jobs. He gets a surprise phone call from a woman he knows slightly through business, offering him a very lucrative rush assignment to get out to the North Fork and interview this uh, somewhat famous winemaker who's got a secret formula that's involved with uh, genetic production of what they call the super grape. What happens, though, uh, Vin drops everything, rushes out to North Fork, only to uh, accidentally discover that the winemaker has been mysteriously murdered. Dun, dun, dun. ba da ba ba So you said Vin was sort of autobiographical. He was sort of gruff. A little, little bit. Rough. yeah. And there was a little bit of romance going on between him and, let me get her name right. Shannon. Uh, <laughs> Shannon Blanc. Yes, That's yes. the other thing with the book. About half the characters have these wine-related names, and it's almost like a little puzzle. People are kind of joking about it, but there's one no one's figured out yet. No one's come up to me yet, and that's the, uh, I don't know if I should disclose it. Don't tell anyone. Okay. Uh, the medical examiner, Dr. Dionysius. That's a wine. That Well, that stems from the Greek god of wine, oh, Dionysus. Oh, okay. So we have to be scholars to read this book. Is that no, what you're telling me? No, 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 no. You have to be a lover of a good, a good fast-paced story with a couple of comic episodes and, and as, you, as you hinted upon, a love interest. So what part of the book do people, what part have they said, that's why I started reading this book? I don't know why it is, but people want to know about, they, they want to be the murderer. People have approached me and said, well, if, you, if it's based on local people, make me the murderer. So do you just tell them, yeah, you're the murderer, just to be nice? I tell them I'll think about <laughs> it. So our society, for some inexplicable reason, has this fascination with murder. Mm -hmm. Murder books are tremendous sellers. Uh, I think it just goes back to, to biblical times. It goes back to Cain and Abel. It's the ultimate of the forbidden act. What I learned in my research is the number one motivation for murder, however, is humiliation. Really? Humiliation. A uh, unfaithful spouse or a cheating business partner, some public form of embarrassment is generally what gets the, the wheels of the murder in motion. Oh, so yes. tell me a little bit more about the book because I don't want to give everything away, but there were certain... Juicy parts, literally juicy, because of where the winemaker happened to, you know, get knocked off. Oh, you're getting very literal, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. He got iced. <laughs> yes, he got iced. So tell me a little bit more about the character, the character of the winemaker, because he, he had a real environmental sense to him. The winemaker is the impetus that gets the story moving. Uh, he's not a major character of the book, but he is the key. He is um, drew on another man in my family who had a life similar to his, saw a lot of trauma in the Second World War and also uh, traveled around a little bit and got involved in the professional winemaking business. Then I took it a step further, though, getting scientific. Uh, he's involved in cloning and genetics, and what he's done is developed the secret super grape, SG, the super grape. But he's very, very secretive, trusts almost no one except for his daughter. He's got no other family left. And what happens is he's so secretive that he only keeps the data in his personal handheld computer, and he's got an intricate map where the vines are planted in his vineyard among the so-called regular vines. So without the handheld computer, which becomes one of the key items the police personnel must recover, uh, it's virtually impossible to identify which vines are the super grapes and which aren't. So, you know, we do advance it. We do scientifically talk about cloning and and genetics, but this man has very generous principles in mind. He will not sell his formula to a gigantic agricultural company because he wants it to do good. He says he, he belongs to a uh, charity group, and he wants for every vine purchased for commercial purposes, he wants another vine donated to international charity because he also sees the fruit as food for impoverished people in developing parts he of the world. He wants to feed the world. Correct, because he had suffered himself. When he was growing up. Correct. So, really, what inspired you to write Red Like Wine? It's your first novel. Yes, my first novel. I've written a couple of business books before that. What inspired me basically was the community. It, it's such a, no pun intended, it's a fertile, fertile area. And my, my imagination has been running wild uh, ever since grapevines have been planted out there. I've also become an amateur winemaker. I've got grapevines in my backyard. Were you a winemaker before the book or after the book? Oh, before. I've been making wine for about 15 years. So what were some of the challenges in bringing your characters to life? You know, that's the whole thing. You know, people always talk about how'd you do this, why'd you do that. But when you look back on it, the thing people remember with books and theater is the character. You know, I'm an old Bronx boy, another old Bronx boy who did a little writing you might have heard of, Neil Simon. I was reading his book a long time ago, and he said it's always the characters. So what I did really was I had a loose idea for a plot. But I spent a lot of time building my principal characters. So as you pointed out, the winemaker, Dr. Lambrusco, he was the guy that his murder was what set everything in motion. Uh, Vin Gusto, obviously the protagonist, his girlfriend, Shannon, uh, the police sergeant, Henry St. Charles, all key people who I, I really built extensive biographies about them. I, my office was just covered in notes. I'm lucky I wasn't buried alive in scraps of paper. <laughs> I had charts on the wall. I had notes about notes. And, uh, because the lives of these people, they are pretty detailed. Even the secondary characters, there's a lot of detail. I mean, you go into detail even about Vin's mom and how she doesn't have an answering machine, you know? Right. She, <laughs> she's a little technologically inept. <laughs> right. And they had a little rough time growing up themselves. But that's because it comes to the other question of something we touched on a minute ago is motivation. Why does a person behave the way they do? There's got to be a reason and that happens when you peel back the layers and basically say, well, how they grew up, this happened to them, that happened to them, they wanted this, but they got that. So things, the, the particular character of Shannon, things were all honky-dory for her until her father passed away. That's another issue that 
hasn't been discussed in the book, the role of the father, where in this case it's the role of the absent father. All the principal characters either have their father missing or lost or unexpectedly uh, dies in the case of Dr. Lambrusco. So it's the, the idea of the missing father and the impact that has on the characters. Now, you hinted that there's a little bit of you in the Vin character, just a little bit. Just a drop. What parts? Well, obviously, the, the, the writer, the reporter. The reporter, the down-on-his-luck reporter. I mean, when I left these hallowed grounds in uh, the mid-'80s, early-'80s, I bounced around. It was a lot like today. It was a recession. There was about 10 or 12% unemployment in New York City, and I got a job the day after I graduated college wow. in a little magazine, a little trade magazine that's not around anymore. But I bounced around, and I was always, always scrambling for assignments. Like the trade magazine that, he, that Vin worked Correct. for. Correct. <laughs> Correct. I, I can't even remember. All, all the magazines I've, I've written for. And a lot of them, the truth is, a lot of them aren't around. But I'm still around, and I uh, you know, got married at a young age, uh, had children relatively young, so I was always scrambling, always, always hustling. While you were writing, did you ever just find yourself stuck with certain characters? Were some characters easier to write than others? Not so much characters stuck, but plot stuck or sequence stuck. I was forever asking myself, what happens next? If he says X... Does she say Y or does she say Z? And I, what happens next? Why did they do that? What am I going to do now? Thing, things of that nature. But there again, having the biographical notes of the characters, their motivations, and what they wanted at the end. I mean, Vin, for example, he, Vin wanted to solve the crime as much as the police officers. So what they wanted was basically the driving force. I would say he, Vin probably wanted to solve the crime even more because he had more of a reason to need it. Yeah, he definitely had a little extra motivation. Yeah, right. Lack of, money Lack of money and just the fact that he was one of those hardcore reporters that just it just ate at it. He's one of those bloodhound types and also he he wanted to get Shannon back. Yeah. Yeah. Well we don't want to give too much away. We don't give too much away. <laughs> <laughs> so you hinted that you really didn't have a particular style. A style of writing? Yes. Believe it or not, I was not a huge reader of mysteries. All the time people come up to me, did you read this one? Did you like this writer? Do you like that writer? Most of the time I have to say, sorry, I'm not too familiar with that. You know, I've read a few, uh, but no, I've spent most of my time working on things like character development. So you didn't bother about it. You just wrote out of your heart. I did write out of my heart, and, and a lot of the characters were, were so biographical, meaning that they appeared in different chapters of my own life that I almost had this library in the back of my head where I would literally hear the characters talking to me or talking to each other. Right. And I would sometimes wake up and think I saw Vin talking to St. Charles. Right. Yeah. So you can almost picture it in your head. Oh, it's you like know? a movie. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's like a movie that keeps running in my, in my head. So is there a message in your novel that you want readers to sort of grasp? I would like that, yeah, a couple of things. You know, um, good things happen when you work hard. Mm-hmm. Deal your cards from the top of the deck. Don't get involved with any dirty dealers. I really like to think that at the end of the day, good triumphs over evil. And you never know from where your next friends may come. And if you see something floating in a wine vat, maybe you want to check out what it is. <laughs> well, you might pass on that wine. But that was another interesting point in my re- research. I learned that before the proliferation of the handgun, the number one murder method was poison. The number one poison was arsenic, but as autopsy science progressed, 
it became too easy to discover arsenic, it graduated to cyanide. And uh, there's a number of ways you can kill a person with cyanide or arsenic. Now, cyanide is easily detected in autopsies, but I discovered a very, very remote agricultural chemical that was once widely used, and this stuff could knock out a horse in a matter of minutes. This stuff was strong, and uh, the government eventually had an amnesty where farmers who legally purchased it could return it without penalty. And as I was talking to one of the farmers out on North Fork, I asked him about it. I said, is, is this stuff really deadly? He said, oh, yeah. He said, it's, it's unbelievable. And I said, but is it, all, is it all cleared up? He says, well, there's a chance Grandpa's got a can in the shed he forgot about. <laughs> so that became the, 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 the method and, and the weapon, and it was you know, lethal injection. Uh, which leaves almost almost no trace, but there's no such thing, almost no such thing as the perfect crime. The reason most crimes uh, are not solved is not because they're perfect or brilliant crimes. It's because the police departments do not have the resources to pursue them fully. So they go into what they call an, an open but inactive type file. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm talking with author Joseph Fenora about his murder mystery book, Red Like Wine. So let's talk more about the research that you had to do. What was maybe some of the most challenging parts of the research that you had to go through? Uh, I had to learn a lot more about police procedure. I didn't know too much about that. And, I, you know, as, a, as an old reporter, I have no problem going up to people and saying, you know, you're, you're a police officer. What happens in this case? So, right. You know, I have a few uh, former New York City police officers who were relatives of mine, and they were working on some interesting cases. And I'd ask them, well, what happens in this case? And what happens in that case? And they'd tell you what is supposed to happen and, you know, what really happens. So I had to learn a lot about police and procedure. And nobody came to, up to you and asked, why are you asking all these oh, questions about them. how to oh, murder someone? Oh, no, I told them straight <laughs> out. I, I was not shy. I told them, I'm writing a murder mystery. I need, a, I need you to answer a, a question for me. And to tell you the truth, when you ask someone about their line of work, most people are very flattered and they're very forthcoming. Most of the time they leave off with a, a line like, oh, yeah, you have any more questions? Give me a call. So everybody's pretty open. Oh yeah, very to you. generous, very generous. And uh, my wife got a little nervous when I sent away for the book of poisons, <laughs> and that came up. She became an expert. Honey, I'll make and, dinner for all from now on. <laughs> she said that's fine as long as you taste it first and the dog tastes it first. Uh, but she became a master at sleeping with one eye open and sending out little cryptic Facebook messages to her friends that should anything Just happen. Just in case, you know where, what, which. You know, you're laughing, but the truth is, in most violent crimes, the first person to be investigated is the spouse. Yeah. That makes sense, though. The, the, you think so, huh? I would think so, because I'm not an expert. <laughs> so why don't I ask you, what did you find out? Why? Because they're generally the closest to the victim. And they might have the most motive. They may have the most motive, or they're going to, if they don't have the motive, if, if they are innocent, which is always possible, they generally have a lot of background knowledge. They'll know if there was, say, a business dispute or something, or money was missing, something like that. They most likely would know that. They'd be the go-to source, yeah. Joe, when you were researching for Red Like Wine, did you come across any research that surprised you, that you just didn't know was even possible or shocked you? Or Well, what surprised me was learning about the poison, mm -hmm. how deadly it was, and even if uh, there was an antidote, it basically wouldn't matter because it's got a five- to ten-minute kill time. 
So that that was a real eye opener. And you know, the other thing that got me was, you know, going into into history, reading about fantastic true crimes, and I'll tell you, when it comes to things like this, people's imaginations are just limitless. In my opinion, some people are almost on the verge of genius when they're trying to get away with something. Any particular true crime stand out for you? I was at the exhibit at the Museum of Natural History. They have a exhibit on the history of poison. I couldn't miss that. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> the uh, old Italian noblewoman, Lucretia Borgia, uh, had a special ring made that had a secret capsule in it that contained arsenic. And when there was someone the Borgias wanted out of the way, Lucretia would get cozy with them. And then the term didn't exist in those days, but she gave them a little injection. Mm -hmm. And then the next morning, well, they weren't a problem anymore. And nobody knew why. No one knew. If you had to do any part of the book all over again, would you change anything? I think I'd shorten it. Yeah? Yeah. Going through it now, I, I, I see that you know, it's it's 2020 hindsight, but I could look back and say, you know, I, I could have tightened that up. Or I was reading it you know, on the train over here this morning saying, you know, I kind of referenced that earlier. I could have probably done without that. But, you know, time pressure comes along and uh, you get that anxiety. You want to, you know, I had a lot of inspiration from my family. I have a home office and I'd always be working and they'd inspire me with things like, did you finish that book yet? <laughs> and I'd say, I'm writing, I'm writing. And they'd say, well, write faster. <laughs> you need that, that inspirational dose. Just, that just, push. Just, yeah, just, just a little ray of sunshine the each little day. little motivation. Yeah, that little ray of sunshine. <laughs> write faster. So how did you like writing your first novel? I, I loved it. I can't wait to start on another project. I have a few things in my mind. I haven't put too much on paper yet, but I loved it. Through trial and error, I discovered I'm at my best early in the morning when I'm, after I'm up for about 30 minutes or so. So that's what would happen. I, I'd get up, you know, 5.30, 5.45 and uh, get myself awake, and I'd hit the computer for a good, you know, 30, 90 minutes, and some days were, were very, very productive. I'd knock out a few pages of which I'd be very proud, and other days I'd totally strike out. But it's the, it's just the stick to itness. Now, Joe, I know that there are some writers who say, you know what, I have to write, you know, whenever I'm free, when the moment hits me. Some writers say, okay, I'm going to specifically write one hour a day, like they have to motivate themselves. You said you write well in the morning. Did you have like a time frame, like I need to write between this time and this time? Or did you sort of get up and say, all right, what's going to happen to Vin today? I'm a little chronologically challenged. So, yeah, I would get up and every day was a little bit different in the sense that if it was 5.45 and I didn't hit the computer, I wasn't I wasn't having a heart attack. I'd say, okay, you know, I'll, I'll get there. Because even if I wasn't writing at the desk, I was writing in my mind. Like I said, the characters were alive in my head. So I was always thinking, okay, what's going to happen to Vin and Shannon today? Uh, so that's how I did it. But I, like I said, I kept a ton of notes. And yeah, I, I wrote generally in the mornings and, and didn't didn't care about much else. And you said, you know, you did a lot of research for your book, uh, Red Like Wine. But did you learn anything personally from the process of writing? Did you grow in any way? Yeah, because it was somewhat therapeutic for me in the sense that it forced me to look back on my own life, my own career, and thought about you know things I did, people I met along the way, things maybe I would do differently. Like? Like some of the publications maybe I got involved with, some of, some of the characters I, I did business with. You know, education doesn't end once you walk out of the classroom. It's, it's ongoing, and, and that's one great thing I like about journalism and communications. You get a hell of an education. It never ends. So what did you learn that you can pass on? Stick to it. 
be practical, be pragmatic, think about is it really going to fly? Is this a feasible idea? But were you like that before the book? I was somewhat practical-minded, yeah. But I also had to think about the impact taking on a project like this has on your family. Uh, when you write about a, a local area, even though it's a fictitious town, there is some impact on the local community. What was the impact? Uh, from Generally Michael? very, very favorable, very, very supportive. Uh, there's been no work of fiction written about the North Fork. There's been a lot of nonfiction in the form of guidebooks, travel books, history books, but there's been no work of fiction on North Fork. So a lot of people are just, just pleased this could be, and they're always coming up to me and go, here's an idea for a book. Why don't you write about you know, X? And I, no I wonder. That's why you had so many characters running around. That's and you why had it took me three years to write it, yeah. <laughs> so did you have any criticism at all? Did anybody say, you know... Any criticism? Yeah. I've had things like, you've got a lot of nerve. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you think? Oh, they, wow. They, but I have to say that the positives to the negatives are, are 10 to 1. Right. The, the community's been very, very supportive. Well, okay. wait, speaking um, of the criticism, though, mm-hmm. have you... Did you learn anything from it? Like, okay, well, next time I'm going to. Yeah, next time I'm going to tighten up my dialogue, uh, get a little more into the characters' biographies. I spent a lot of time studying dialogue. After college, I went back and got a a master's degree in in theater at Hunter College just to practice dialogue, to listen to dialogue. And you develop that ear. I've been living on North Fork full-time for about 16 years now, and every once in a while someone will say to me, you're from the city, aren't you? And I say, yeah. And, they, and I say, why do you say that? And they'll, you know, they'll say something like, the way you walked or you know, the way you pronounced a, a, a certain word. So after all these years, there's still a, a sharp ear can still pick those things up. Pick up that Bronx guy that you are. Yeah, like they say, you, you know, they say, the way you walk. That's the one I hear the most. Not so much talk, but the way you walk I hear. You said you didn't read uh, a whole lot of murder mystery books to prepare f- for writing your murder mystery book. So what books have influenced you? Uh, in, in mysteries, I, I liked Christopher Wright's uh, Numbered Account. That's a book about the um, private banking industry, which shows up in my book, as you know, because along my uh, circuitous journey as a writer, I did for a while cover private banking. Uh, I was a financial journalist for some time. I worked on Wall Street for a while for a couple of big firms. But prior to that, I was a financial journalist and there again, talk about the education. That was just a, an endless education for me because when people hear you're a journalist, so many doors swing open for you. Cover, private banking, I loved it because it was just talk about mystery. Private banking was, you know, in the world of finance, that is the, the top of the pyramid in, in terms of mystery. And then all this controversy came up in the past couple of years about Swiss accounts. Should they be disclosed? Should they remain confidential? So I, I had some experience in that. So that became part of the book. And that was a real change of course because you think, oh, gee, what do these people in this sleepy little farming community have to do with offshore accounts and money transfers? We worked it in. There was a reason for it. Everything has to have a, a reason. And the thing is, it's like making that, that big pot of soup. You just keep putting in more and more ingredients, and the ingredients are your characters. And at the end, you know, hopefully you have something really good. Are you reading anything now? I like to read baseball books. What's your favorite team? I'm a Bronx boy. <laughs> My favorite team is, is, the, the is the team down the road, right? <laughs> it's the Yankees. The Yankees. And, but I do have a soft spot for the Mets. And uh, with any luck, I'll be in Los Angeles on, on business, and I'll sneak in a Dodgers game. Joe, do you have a, a favorite <laughs> author? I will say probably one of my literary idols is um, Salinger, Catcher in the Rye. I probably read that once every couple of years. Why Salinger? 
because I just love that character, Holden Caulfield. But growing up here, what do you love in, about him? Uh, because he's so true. Um, is the poor kid, poor not financially poor, but tormented. sympathetically tormented, alienated. Some before we had the phrase "at risk youth," distant parents. Uh, they technically gave him everything, but they didn't give him any emotional support. And he's he's a lost young man. He's not a bad young man. He's good natured, but he's lost. And I give Salinger a lot of credit for creating not so much that character, but bringing that character type to the forefront of, of the American consciousness. And I think that character type still exists. I think it's going to exist for, for a long time. Uh, but even here, just walking down Fordham Road, I'm thinking, uh, you know, Dr. O and Billy Bathgate. I'm thinking Dom DeLillo and, and White Noise. I'm, I'm thinking of the Higgins-Clark sisters, uh, a mom and daughter team, rather. Uh, I loved Hubert Selby, who's from Brooklyn. I, I loved reading Last Exit to Brooklyn, which I read uh, as a student here. So many, so many rich, rich literary characters and writers out of New York. Now, having gone through the experience of writing your first novel, what advice do you have for first-time writers? Take it slow. You know, you, when you, you're a, a first-timer, a relatively young person, you want to set the world on fire. You know, you want to say... I'm writing that great American novel. They're going to be reading about me in college 20 years from now. Studying me in college. Studying me, buying my book, probably not reading it, but buying it. Um, but take it slow. Get it. There's, there's only one way to get experience, and um, you've got to go out there. You've got to live life. Keep your eyes and ears open all the time. Those, those are the, the most important tools you'll ever have. What expectations, obviously, other than buy my book, what expectations do you have for Red Like Wine? I, I, I really hope Red Like Wine opens the door to more people to come visit the North Fork. I really do. Um, it's gone far, like I said earlier, in the nonfiction realm, but I, I'm hoping that this book will encourage other people, mystery readers in particular, to come out and, and see what's out there. Well, what made you move to North Fork? Uh, very lucky. My, I had summered out there my whole life. My grandfather started, um, bought a small house out there shortly after the Second World War, and I have a ton of cousins, and I used to call them my summer cousins. That's the only time I saw them, but we were living in the New York area, and we go out there on weekends, and every Sunday night, you, you turn that key in the car and you say, ah, if only we lived here. So uh, we well, made, what did you we love made the about leap. It, though? Uh, Outside of, you know, the family bonding there. I, I, I love that. It, it's, it's very much a um, family-oriented community. It is uh, conveniently isolated from the rest of the world. I and mean, you go over in the summertime, you go over to towns like Sag Harbor or Southampton, and it's, it's like Times Square trying to cross the street. You come back to North Fork, you could lie down in the middle of the road. So why would you want more people to go Well, you know, it's becoming, it's becoming a food destination between the wine the farms and the fishing, it's really becoming a food destination. And people travel now to sample food. That's, what, that's why they go to places like New Orleans. They want to have the Cajun food. So they'll come out to sample food. The roads in the North Fork are actually busier with more traffic in the fall between Labor Day and Thanksgiving than they are, say, between Memorial Day and Fourth of July. Mm. People want to come out. I don't know why, but they want to come out and pick a pumpkin, and they want to drink wine. And that's what they do. <laughs> so uh, you make wine— do you sell wine, or you just? Make oh them? no, no, not allowed to do that. It's Wait. personal consumption. Ah, okay. What made you get into wine making? Oh boy, I was intrigued by it. My family descends from a line of professional winemakers. There was at, at one time around the turn of the century, 
there was a migration of Italians from Italy to California to help build that wine business. My great-grandfather was part of that migration. They lost a lot of their property in the great San Francisco earthquake. Then they moved back to New York because they had family, but they were always involved in different ways in, in the wine business. I worked my way through college in a liquor store. I remember seeing guys in the neighborhood making wine in their garages, and it was so horrendous. I'd see them literally pouring bottles of soda into the wine because it was just so bitter. They really didn't know what they were doing. And then after we moved full-time out to the North Fork, I got a small job writing for a local paper interviewing winemakers, and I became friendly with one of them. Uh, in fact, that's the winery where the initial murder takes place. That's at Jamesport Vineyards. I don't think they'll mind me saying that. We became friendly, and he began teaching me about how to make wine, and I would buy grapes and make the wine. And, and my wife is a uh, science teacher. She's got a good chemistry background, and that's been invaluable in making wine. I'm more of the artistic, uh, let's throw it on the wall, see how it goes type. <laughs> so you literally, you know, with your family, you have wine in your blood, literally. I think so. <laughs> and we certainly got the stains on the tablecloth. So thank you for coming in and joining me, Joseph. Thank you. It's, like I said, it's been great to come back here after so many years and, and, and sit at this microphone and see that on-air light go on. It, it sent a little rush through me, so it was great. Joseph Fenora's book, Red Like Wine, The North Fork Harbor Vineyard Murders, is out now through Ex Libris Press. I'd also like to thank Fordham Conversations senior producer, Alan Kamlick. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Stay tuned for Cityscape with George Bodarkey. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. <laughs> <laughs>